Hey, Lynn here. I'm so excited to tell you that Too Complicated for History has joined Into History. Into History is a podcast subscription channel made by history lovers for history lovers. Get instant access to hundreds of ad-free history episodes, plus the keys to the archives, exclusive bonus content, a weekly newsletter, a community hub to keep the conversation going, and more. You've probably heard of the Cold War, but have you heard of the Cod Wars? Today we are featuring an episode from Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs. The Cod Wars were a series of conflicts that took place between Iceland and Great Britain during the 20th century. Centered around disputes over fishing rights and territorial waters, these confrontations showcased the struggle between Iceland's efforts to protect its valuable cod fishing industry and Britain's interest in maintaining access to these fishing grounds. A little bit about the podcast. Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is a maritime history podcast which tells the stories of the most notorious, tragic, and mysterious events in the history of ocean voyages, along with the most amazing and significant accomplishments in maritime history. Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is just one of the many shows we are excited to be featured with on Into History. Rich and his show are awesome, and you definitely want to check it out wherever you get your podcasts, but especially on Into History. Check out our affiliate link in the description. Enjoy! It's the 7th of January, 1976. The Icelandic Coast Guard vessel Thor is just leaving its port at Seithisfirthur on the east coast of Iceland. Its commander is Helgi Haraldsson, one of the most experienced commanders of the Icelandic Coast Guard. He is taking his 960-ton gunboat on patrol in search of any British trawlers illegally fishing in Icelandic waters. Iceland just recently announced a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone to prevent foreign fishing in its waters. This, as it turned out, was serious business. After passing out of the mouth of the long and narrow fjord, Halvartsen spots a trawler in the distance. This trawler is the Ross Resolution out of Grimsby and is actively fishing with its nets deployed. Halvartsen sets his course to intercept the vessel and orders the trawl cutter readied. As the Thor approaches the slower trawler, he notices something behind him. Whatever it is, it is gaining on him quickly. He soon discovers it is the frigate HMS Andromeda of the Royal Navy. Halvardsen stays his course, still heading for the trawler off in the distance. The Andromeda easily overtakes the smaller, slower Thor and pulls alongside. Halvardsen sounds warning blasts and the frigate returns them. Just a month earlier, the Thor was involved in a similar incident, during which she was rammed and damaged by the tugboat Lloydsman, requiring repairs. Now, Halvardsen thought, here we go again. The Andromeda gradually pushed closer to the Thor, and Halvardsen kept his course. For over an hour, the frigate and gunboat trade maneuvers as Halvardsen attempts to break free of his harasser and get close enough to the trawler to cut her nets. As the ships approach the Ross Resolution, the frigate captain orders the trawler to haul in its nets to prevent the Thor from cutting them. The Andromeda quickly put itself between the two ships, preventing the Icelanders from confronting the fishing vessel. After about 10 minutes of cat and mouse, the Thor is now headed north and the trawler is a mile away. Still, the Andromeda pursues the Thor and Halvardsen can see the frigate approaching on his stern. He keeps his course, even as the Andromeda overtakes him. The frigate then veers toward his ship at full speed from the starboard side on a collision course. The Icelandic commander has earned a few nicknames from the British. Mad Helgi, the Maddest Axeman, and Napoleon of the North 
for his perceived aggressiveness. But on this day, he orders engines slowed in a hard turn to port, hoping to avoid a collision. Suddenly, he is jolted. The Andromeda had overtaken her and slammed into the Thor's starboard bow. Two large holes were punched into the gunboat, damaging the ship's heating system and causing significant damage to the bow. Halvartsen has no choice but to anchor his ship and assess the damage. Soon, the gunboat Tyr arrives to assist, as well as the frigate HMS Nyad, which is shadowing the Icelandic gunboat. Under escort of the Tyr, Thor limps back into Seithusfjörður for repairs. This incident took place during the Third Cod War and was just one of many confrontations between the small but feisty Icelandic Coast Guard and the imposing Royal Navy ships. This unlikely aggression between allies and fellow NATO members caught the world's attention. This was not a conventional war, but nevertheless, the stakes were high and the livelihoods of many were on the line. The Cod Wars, today, on Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs. Fishing in the northwestern Atlantic goes back to the 9th century AD, when Europeans first discovered Iceland. Archaeological records show the discovery of crude metal hooks used by Norse settlers, which they attached to the intestines of sheep, cows, or walruses. Ever since, fishing has been critical to the survival of Iceland's population. Fishermen from the British Isles and other European areas started fishing around Iceland in the 15th century. Toward the end of the 19th century, Steam-powered vessels allowed far more fishing vessels to reach Iceland, primarily from Great Britain, the Netherlands, and Germany. Iceland was a territory of Denmark at the time, and in 1893, Denmark declared a 50 nautical mile fishing limit around Iceland, as well as the Faroe Islands, to protect its territorial waters. This limit was completely ignored by the British, who saw it as a threat to their fishing industry. Denmark then offered a 13-mile limit, resulting in British warships arriving on the scene. The disagreement escalated, resulting in armed conflicts and the capture and jailing of a British captain. In 1901, the United Kingdom and Denmark signed the Anglo-Danish Territorial Waters Agreement, establishing a three nautical mile limit around Iceland's coast for a period of 50 years. Regulation of fishing of territorial waters goes back to 1703, when the three mile limit was accepted by the United States Great Britain, Germany, Japan, and other naval powers. However, some nations declared four- or six-mile limits, while Russia maintained a 12-mile limit. But in practice, a three-mile limit was the international standard, and that is what was enforced. By the 1930s, other nations became concerned with foreign fishing in their territorial waters. Wishing to protect their vast number of fjords, Norway imposed a four-mile limit around its shores, protecting their fish stocks from foreign trawlers. This was largely unenforced until after World War II, when several British trawlers were apprehended and their crews arrested. Joseph Stalin enforced a 12-mile limit to protect the rich fishing stocks of the Barents Sea and backed it up with his naval ships. 
However, bilateral agreements had allowed British fishing vessels within three miles of Soviet territory. By 1956, Stalin began enforcing the 12-mile limit, even for British trawlers, despite previous agreements. After several British vessels were escorted out of Soviet waters, the 12-mile limit was accepted in exchange for access to a 3-mile limit in a few select regions. Iceland was occupied by British and American forces during World War II, which proved to be beneficial for the Icelandic economy. In addition to infrastructure improvements, including two airports, its fishing fleets were modernized and the fish were bountiful. When it achieved its independence in 1944, Iceland's leaders were aware the only way their small nation could succeed was to also achieve economic independence. Following the war, as European nations returned to normalcy, foreign fishing trawlers began showing up around Iceland. As fish stocks diminished with increased foreign fishing, overfishing of its territorial waters became a hotly debated topic. In 1949, Iceland began a two-year process of instituting a four-mile exclusive economic zone around its shores, starting with its northern coast. This was not an area where British trawlers fished, so it was not met with any official opposition. At the same time, the UK and Norway were in the midst of a decades-long dispute over the definition of Norwegian territorial waters, which started at the mouths of its fjords and extended outward from outlying islands. The dispute was settled by the International Court of Justice in 1951 when it ruled in favor of Norway. This ruling supported Iceland's ideas of its own local waters. With this favorable ruling, in addition to the expiration of the 1901 agreement, Iceland declared a four nautical mile limit around the entire island in 1952, including the primary fishing areas off its southern and western coasts. The language of its limitations provided, quote, 47 consecutive baselines drawn around the coast of Iceland, enclosing the waters of its coastal archipelagos, islands, and rocks within these lines. No maximum is stipulated for the lengths of baselines, as they vary in length according to the particular geographic features. Most notably, baselines were drawn across the openings of bays, including the rich fishing areas of Faxa Bay and Breithafjörður. The morning following this announcement, British fishing boats flew their flags at half-mast, and newspapers dubbed it Black Thursday. In addition to cutting off another nautical mile of potential fishing around the entire island, it also put fishing vessels further out to sea, making it more difficult to shelter from harsh weather. This forced captains to either cease fishing and head home, or force their crews to work in dangerous conditions. And very few captains chose to cease fishing, as an empty boat might put a captain out of a job. In response, between 1952 and 1956, the UK fishing industry banned all Icelandic fish from entering their ports, which was a significant loss of revenue for the Icelandic economy. In 1953, British businessman and convicted fraudster George Dawson agreed to purchase Icelandic fish. Vendors who bought fish from Dawson were subsequently blacklisted and the entire venture lost about 100,000 pounds. Joseph Stalin then interjected himself into the political trade dispute and began buying Icelandic fish. Fearing increased Soviet influence in Iceland, the United States began buying Icelandic fish as well. After a decision in 1956 by the Organization of European Economic Cooperation, the UK finally accepted Iceland's four-mile limit. In 1958, the United Nations Conference on the Law of the Sea was held in Geneva, 
attended by 86 countries in an attempt to settle these disputes and agree on an international standard. The nations were primarily divided between those who wanted 12 nautical mile limits and those who wanted six mile limits with an additional six miles of conditional management. A joint proposal by the United States and Canada for the six mile limit fell one vote short of being approved, with Mexico playing a key role in the proposal's defeat. No international agreement was reached, and disputes would continue. Later that year, Iceland announced an expansion of their exclusive economic zone from 4 to 12 nautical miles, beginning at midnight on the 1st of September. The British fishing industry was outraged, claiming the Icelandic government was violating international law and ignoring centuries of tradition and informal understanding of maritime law. In response, the Royal Navy was dispatched to escort and protect the British fishing fleet into Icelandic waters. Thus began the so-called gunboat diplomacy and the first of the Cod Wars. Thirty-seven Royal Navy ships and over 7,000 sailors were sent to protect British fishing interests. Iceland had no standing army or navy, and still doesn't to this day. The Icelandic Coast Guard was tasked with protecting its waters and consisted of six patrol vessels and about 100 sailors. Despite being vastly outnumbered and outgunned, the small Icelandic force was determined to impose this 12-mile limit. Fishing represented the majority of Iceland's exports at the time and was critical to its economic independence. Complicating matters was both countries' membership in NATO, and by definition, each is obligated to help protect the interests of the other. An awkward situation, to be sure. Public protests were held outside the British Embassy in Reykjavik, prompting the British ambassador to respond with bagpipe music directed at the crowd. Royal Navy frigates were on hand to confront any of Iceland's Coast Guard vessels who attempted to interfere with the fishing fleet. Frigate commanders simply threatened to sink the Icelandic gunboats, which they easily could have done, if attempts were made to interfere with fishing efforts. Calling their bluffs, the plucky Icelanders knew the British commanders did not have permission from London to fire upon them. The British warships made a big show with their guns in an attempt to intimidate, but the Icelanders stood their ground. Iceland Coast Guard Commander Helgi Halvardsson recalled an incident while patrolling the waters off Iceland's west fjords. The weather was bad, and the seas were rough when he spotted British trawlers inside of the 12-mile exclusion zone. He approached and announced to the vessels that they were in Icelandic waters and fishing illegally. One of the trawler captains then asked how much the fine would be for illegal fishing. After learning it was 2,000 pounds for the first offense and 4,000 pounds for additional offenses, the captain said he would just risk it and pay the fine. The Icelandic Coast Guard threatened a prosecution, jail time, and fines for noncompliance. A fishing vessel captain who had been in Icelandic court several times for violations stated, I never ever knew one of the Icelandic Coast Guard officers to tell a lie. They simply stated the facts. They were very fair in that respect. Another commander in the Icelandic Coast Guard, Captain Eric Christofferson, on board the Coast Guard vessel Thor, confronted the fishing trawler Northern Foam, which was fishing inside the 12-mile limit. The Icelanders boarded the ship, 
But soon, the HMS Eastbourne arrived on the scene and sent a boat with a fully armed crew. The Icelanders were taken aboard the Eastbourne as, shall we say, unwilling guests. After 11 days, the British gave the Icelanders a boat to row themselves into the U.S. NATO base at Keflavik. On the 4th of September, the Coast Guard vessel Ager was confronted by the HMS Russell. The two ships wound up colliding, although neither ship was significantly damaged. It was a sign of increasing tension and an indication that the Icelanders were not going to back down. A month later, on the 6th of October, the Coast Guard vessel Maria Julia fired three warning shots at the Kingston Emerald, forcing the fishing trawler out of Icelandic waters. Later that year, on the 12th of November, the trawler Hackness was approached by the Coast Guard vessel Thor and was ordered to stop. The Hackness was inside of the 12-mile exclusion zone and did not have its net stowed, which was required by Icelandic law. The Hackness refused to stop, and Commander Christofferson ordered his men to fire on the trawler. They fired two blanks, and then a live round off the bow. This prompted the arrival of the HMS Russell. The Russell's commander told the Icelanders to leave the trawler be because it was outside of the four nautical mile zone recognized by the UK government. But Christofferson didn't back down and ordered his ship to approach closer with his guns ready. The British commander threatened to sink the vessel immediately if a single shot was fired. By this time, more Royal Navy ships arrived on the scene, and the Hackness retreated. Cooler heads prevailed, and the incident was diffused. The fishermen on board the trawlers began to employ weapons of their own, fashioning spears and hooks to deflate the rubber dinghies used by the Icelanders to approach. They also sprayed scalding water on the guardsmen to prevent them from boarding. Some, jokingly, threw potatoes at the Icelanders. Many of the fishermen at the time saw it as good fun and had a bit of a laugh over such conflicts. With the real threat of warships firing on their vessels, the Icelandic Coast Guard backed off a bit and took a different approach. Rather than directly confronting the fishing trawlers, they tracked and logged every vessel that was fishing illegally. Although the situation had calmed down significantly, over the next two years, the dispute continued. Finally, in 1961, Iceland threatened to withdraw from NATO and remove United States forces from the island. The dispute was brought before the United Nations Conference on the Law of the Sea between 1960 and 1961. An agreement was reached allowing Iceland's 12-mile exclusion zone, but allowing UK fishing vessels access to the outermost six miles in specifically allocated fishing zones, and also during certain seasons, for a period of three years. In addition, both countries agreed to have any further disputes heard before the International Court of Justice at The Hague. Thus ended the First Cod War. All was well until 1972. Iceland had just elected a new coalition government who wished to ramp up protection of Iceland's resources. Iceland's Althingi, or Parliament, decided to expand the exclusive economic zone to 50 nautical miles. The reasons for this expansion were to preserve cod stocks and to increase Iceland's share in total catches. A 200 nautical mile exclusion zone was considered, but it was determined it would be impossible to patrol and enforce such a large area. Once again, the UK fishing industry was infuriated and brought the issue before the International Court of Justice. This time, the court ruled in the UK's favor, determining the 12-mile limit would remain in effect. 
However, Iceland's Prime Minister, Olafur Johansson, announced Iceland was under no obligation to abide by the agreement signed by the previous government, and the 50-mile limit would be enforced. This began the Second Cod War. British trawlers resumed fishing, ignoring the 50-mile announced limit. Knowing the Icelandic Coast Guard would be tracking their movements, trawler captains responded by painting over or otherwise covering the names of their ships, their registration numbers, and other identifying features. Some even mockingly flew the Jolly Roger. When confronted, the fishermen derisively taunted the Icelanders, giving them the two-fingered salute, so to speak, and singing Rule Britannia. Despite the taunting, the Coast Guardsmen didn't flinch and continued to warn, harass, and confront the trawlers, and collisions did occur. It was at this time the Icelandic Prime Minister authorized the use of Iceland's secret weapon, the trawl wire cutter, or warp cutter. This device was invented by Peter Sigurdsson, director of the Icelandic Coast Guard. It was an iron grappling hook of sorts. The device would be attached to a rope and fired perpendicular to the trawl nets of the fishing vessels, then hauled back in, catching the trawl wires in its hooks and cutting the nets. All seven of the Coast Guard's vessels were outfitted with this weapon before unleashing it on the fishing fleet. It was used for the first time on September 5, 1972, when the Coast Guard vessel Eger cut the nets of the vessel Peter Scott. When the crew finally realized what had happened, they berated the Coast Guard vessel, throwing a fire axe, coal, garbage, and other debris at the Eger, as well as shouting a few choice words. The loss of trawling nets was significant for the fishing vessels, as it took time to repair the nets, and every moment spent repairing nets meant a smaller catch. The net itself was valued at about $5,000, in addition to the value of the catch. The trawlers were defenseless against this weapon, and they began losing quite a bit of revenue as a result. On the 18th of January, 1973 alone, the Icelanders managed to cut 18 trawl wires. The following day, the tugboat Statesman arrived from the UK to assist, but it was ineffective against the faster and more maneuverable Icelandic vessels. Additional tugs arrived as well, but the fishing fleet called them a joke and insisted frigates be sent instead but the trawlers would get a brief respite when on the 23rd of January, 1973, the volcano Eldfettel erupted on Jaime, forcing all Icelandic Coast Guard vessels to assist with rescue operations. The British fishing fleet left Icelandic waters on the 17th of May, 1973, and returned two days later with Royal Navy frigates. This was a specially selected task force, uniquely prepared to deal with the Icelandic Coast Guard and their trawl wire cutters. This was codenamed Operation Dewey and included patrol jets flying over the fishing zones to inform the trawlers of the locations of Icelandic Coast Guard vessels. This precipitated another international crisis. The Icelandic government was furious over the return of the Royal Navy in their waters and threatened to invoke Article 5 of the NATO Charter. This article states that an attack on any NATO member is considered an attack on all NATO members, resulting in, quote, such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force to restore and maintain the security of the North Atlantic area. Protests returned to the streets of Reykjavik, and the windows of the British embassy were smashed. On the 26th of May, the Coast Guard vessel Eger spotted the trawler Everton and gave warnings to cease fishing. The Everton's captain refused. The Eger pursued, fully intending to stop the trawler and arrest its captain. 
The Eger fired blank warning shots at the Everton, but when it failed to stop, live rounds were fired, hitting the Everton with four shots in the bow. The trawler began to take on water, but managed to make its way to the HMS Jupiter and received assistance. The incident was a shock to NATO members, as this was the first time live rounds had caused damage and quite possibly could have sunk the trawler. A week later on the 1st of June, the Icelandic lighthouse tender Ivriker rammed four British vessels, followed by the Eger colliding with the HMS Scylla on the 7th of June. On the 29th of August, the Eger again was involved in a collision with a British frigate, this time with the HMS Apollo. The Eger sustained hull damage, and while engineer Haldor Halfredsen was attempting to make repairs with his welding equipment, water flooded the compartment and he was electrocuted. NATO again took notice, and its Secretary General Joseph Lunds demanded this escalating dispute between member nations be settled. With NATO serving as a mediator, a deal between the two nations was reached on the 8th of November, 1973, and was approved by the Icelandic Althingi on the 13th. Iceland's 50 nautical mile limit would stand, and the British fishing fleet was given a 12-mile limit in certain areas and was limited to a total catch of 130,000 tons. This agreement was set to expire in 1975. Despite the agreement, on the 19th of July, 1974, the trawler C.S. Forrester was discovered fishing inside the limit by the Icelandic gunboat Thor. The trawler was pursued for 100 nautical miles before the Thor fired non-explosive shells at the trawler, hitting her twice and causing damage to the ship's engine room. The Forrester was boarded, Captain Richard Taylor arrested, and the trawler was towed to Iceland. Taylor was sentenced to 30 days in prison and fined 5,000 pounds. Taylor was released after the Forrester's owner paid his bail of 2,232 pounds and another 26,300 pounds to have the Forrester released. By the mid-1970s, cod stocks in Iceland's waters had dropped by a third, and herring had almost disappeared completely. The herring catch had dropped from 8.5 million tons in 1958 to virtually zero in 1970. Marine biologists issued warnings of Icelandic cod stocks being completely gone by 1980 without any further protections. Iceland could not afford the loss of cod to its economy, and in May of 1975, with the expiration of the 1973 agreement soon approaching, Iceland announced its intentions to expand its exclusion zone to 200 nautical miles. With this announcement, the Third Cod War had begun. The British fishing fleet acknowledged the declining stocks of cod, but did not agree the waters had been overfished, and it also objected to the limits on catch totals proposed by Iceland. The fishing industry predicted the loss of 9,000 jobs and once again requested assistance from the Royal Navy. Almost immediately, clashes were reported, and Iceland's trawl wire cutters were again employed, further angering and frustrating the British fleet. In response to the return of the Royal Navy, Iceland made attempts to purchase U.S. Asheville-class gunboats and Soviet Mirka-class frigates, but their requests were denied. One of the most notable events during all of the Cod Wars occurred on 11th of December 1975. According to Icelandic reports, 
commander of the Coast Guard vessel Thor, Helgi Halvardsson, was patrolling the mouth of the fjord at Seithusfjörður, on Iceland's east coast. As he approached the mouth of the fjord, he spotted three British vessels, the ocean-going tug Lloydsman, the support vessels Star Aquarius and Star Polaris. They were sheltering in the fjord from a Force 9 gale whipping through the area. Halvardsson ordered the ships to leave, and the vessels initially complied. When reaching about two nautical miles from shore, the Star Aquarius suddenly turned and rammed the Thor's port side, and the two ships collided and bumped several times before Thor turned aside. The tug Lloydsman, a much larger ship than the Thor, came about and wedged itself between the Star Aquarius and the Thor, protecting the support ship from being boarded. Allegedly, the Lloydsman rammed the Thor again, striking her port side, and Halvartsen fired two blank warning shots and then a live round at the Lloydsman, reportedly striking the tug's bow. The British ships then veered off and out to sea. The bow of the Thor sustained significant damage and was in danger of sinking, but was able to limp back to Seithusfjörður for repairs, escorted by the Coast Guard vessel Tyr. But according to British accounts, the crew of the Thor attempted to board the Star Aquarius and then fired shots after the Lloydsman intervened. Iceland's ambassador in London, Neil Sigurdsson, claimed the Thor was acting in self-defense after being rammed and damaged. Iceland's foreign minister, Einar Agustin, said, If the tugboats continue to ram Icelandic ships in Icelandic waters, what can we do but shoot? He went on to say, Any disaster which could be attributed to the presence of British warships engaged in the unlawful use of force in Icelandic waters could easily result in such extensive damage to the NATO cause in my country that no Icelandic government would be in a position to counter it effectively. Following this incident, frigates were again ordered to Iceland. In total, 22 frigates, 7 supply ships, 9 tugboats, and 3 support ships were sent to protect the fleet. More collisions would continue. With much finger-pointing and grandstanding from both nations, the event again sparked the attention of NATO in the international community. Still, tensions mounted, and conflicts continued. On the 26th of March, 1976, the Coast Guard vessel Balthor confronted the HMS Galicia, colliding with her several times. The following day, the Balthor rammed the HMS Galicia, leaving the British warship with a 20-foot gash in her hull. The Galicia... HMS Juno and the Tug Lloydsman then chased the Balthor out of the area. Two months later, the Balthor rammed the HMS Eastbourne, damaging her badly enough to knock her entirely out of the conflict. Diplomatic negotiations had been ongoing since January of 1976, but neither side was willing to budge. With no deal in sight, Iceland and the United Kingdom both withdrew their ambassadors, ending diplomatic relations on the 19th of February. 1976. The confrontations and rammings continued into May of 1976 when the Royal Navy received authority to protect British vessels using any means necessary. On the 6th of May, the Coast Guard vessel Tyr confronted the fishing trawler Carlisle. Soon after, the frigate HMS Falmouth arrived on the scene, and Captain Gerald Plummer rammed the Tyr at a speed of 22 knots. The tier was very nearly capsized, but was able to right herself. It then successfully fired its trawl wire cutter and cut the nets of the Carlisle, prompting the Falmouth to ram the Icelandic vessel again, damaging her further and knocking out all but one of her engines. 
The tier was badly damaged and in very real danger of sinking if rammed again. When the tug statesmen began pursuing, Captain Guthmunder Kjarnestad ordered his crew to man the guns in a brave showdown with the much more powerful British frigate. Not wishing to engage in a gun battle, both sides retreated and no further damage was done. Over 55 ramming incidents occurred during the Third Cod War between November of 1975 and June of 1976. Of the 22 frigates sent by the Royal Navy, 15 of them returned damaged. During one of these collisions, a fisherman from Grimsby was struck in the head by a cut trawl line, making him the second casualty of the Cod Wars. By the end of May, negotiations between the two NATO members had resumed. Iceland threatened to leave NATO entirely and close the U.S. NATO base at Keflavik. This was of particular concern because the Iceland base was necessary to prevent Soviet submarines from using the Greenland Sea to pass into the North Atlantic. With this being a real possibility, the UK government conceded to recognize Iceland's 200 nautical mile exclusion zone. The NATO base at Keflavik was a key factor in this decision, but the UK also desired to have its own 200 nautical mile limit. In the end, the agreement allowed a maximum of 24 British trawlers to operate inside the 200-mile limit, with an annual catch not exceeding 30,000 tons. UK officials realized it had much to lose and little to gain by continuing this conflict. The British Foreign Secretary and the Secretary for Fisheries and Food referenced the bigger picture, stating, NATO's defenses in the North Atlantic and the balance of power were more important than the interests of the trawler owners and fishermen. In 1982, 200 nautical miles became international law at the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. The result of the Cod Wars and Iceland's 200-mile exclusive economic zone was devastating to British fishing, most notably in the ports of Grimsby, Hull, Aberdeen, and Fleetwood. Thousands of people in the northern ports were put out of work. Fishing-related industries such as marinas and canning and packing plants were also hit hard. The UK government promised to offer relief to those who lost their livelihoods, giving tens of millions of pounds to trawler owners collectively. But most of those who actually worked on the trawlers received next to nothing, as the government deemed them to be casual laborers. The nature of working on long-distance trawlers often required workers to go from vessel to vessel throughout the season, preventing long-term employment on a single trawler. In 1993, the High Court ruled trawlermen affected by the Cod Wars were permitted to claim redundancy payments, or what is called unemployment benefits, in the U.S. But the ex-trawlermen were unhappy with the criteria being applied. According to this ruling, each person needed to prove two years of continuous employment with a single employer between the years 1974 and 1979. Anyone who continued working after 1979 was denied any payment. In total, 14 million pounds were paid out to 8,000 workers, but this still excluded a great number of trawlermen who were left with nothing. As the years dragged on, compensation for the Cod Wars became a contentious topic, involving MPs in affected areas lobbying for their constituents. In 2000, a new agreement was reached, and an additional £60 million was paid out to former trawlermen, with each person entitled to £1,000 for every year of service, up to a maximum of £20,000. But still, only 63% of claims were awarded, leaving many without compensation. In 2009, an additional payment plan was approved, 
and more fishermen became eligible to receive compensation. But in 2012, almost 35 years after the Cod Wars concluded, the British government apologized to roughly 2,500 claimants who had been previously denied after a parliamentary ombudsman discovered the compensation program had been mismanaged. A 1,000-pound compensation was awarded to each claimant who lost their livelihood. This was not received warmly, and many former trawlermen found it insulting. Charles Grimmer, who had been jailed in Iceland during the Cod Wars, said, Consider the ages of most of the trawlermen now. Some have passed on or won't have the time left to enjoy the money. I'm pleased they will be getting something, but it's all too little, too late. Today, fishing represents 40% of Iceland's exports and 13% of its workforce. Icelandic cod stocks rebounded briefly in the 1980s before steadily decreasing over three decades. However, stocks have been on the rise or stable since 2010 due to increased conservation and management efforts. Iceland remains heavily dependent on the fishing industry to support its economy, with fishing second only to tourism. While calling these conflicts wars may be a bit of hyperbole, it was a serious conflict that impacted thousands of lives over several decades. Its effects in the northern port towns of Great Britain can still be felt today. It is a stark reminder of the importance of good-faith negotiations of interested parties in order to avoid armed conflict. The Cod Wars could have been far worse had cooler heads not prevailed. For Iceland, it proved how a small nation with no standing army or navy could stand up to a superpower using whatever leverage it had, in this case, its membership in NATO and its NATO base at Keflavik. For the United Kingdom, it showed a rational unwillingness to use deadly force against a far less powerful NATO ally to prevent an international crisis. In 2006, the Icelandic seaside village of Vík gifted a bronze statue to the port town of Hull in Yorkshire. The statue is called Voyage, and it depicts a man leaning toward and looking out over the ocean. It has a similar sister statue in Vík called Four. The original statue in Hull was stolen for scrap metal in 2011, but 40,000 pounds were allocated to have it recast and replaced by the original artist Steinun Thorarin's daughter. In February 2017, surviving crew members of two vessels involved in the Cod Wars, the Arctic Corsair out of Hull and the Icelandic Coast Guard vessel Odin, exchanged ship's bells in a gesture of friendship between Hull and Reykjavik. The ceremony was coordinated by Hall Museums to highlight the history between Iceland and the United Kingdom. That's going to do it for this episode about the Cod Wars. Thank you so much for listening. I'd like to ask all of you, if you haven't already, to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, goodpods.com, or podchaser.com. It's free to do, means a lot to me, and only takes a moment of your time. I'd really appreciate it. Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is written, edited, and produced by me, Rich Napolitano. You can follow Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs at Shipwrecks Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and now also on Threads, Spoutable, and Tribal. If that's not enough, you can also follow on Mastodon at ShipwrecksPod at C.im. Episode, show notes, images, and sources can be found on shipwrecksandseadogs.com. The outstanding original theme music is by Sean Siegfried, and you can follow him on YouTube at Sean Secret or on the web at sean.sigfried.se. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, don't forget to wear 
your life jackets. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media. Produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price Robbins. Edited and mixed by Curtis Fritch. Opening theme music by Sheena Biratello.